First Peter chapter 1. And as I said this morning already, we uh, have this pastoral internship these guys are doing this summer. And let me encourage you, as much as you are able to, to encourage them. And next week, uh, Carl will start off teaching the Sunday class. And then after that, Paul will do that. And we're going to go through the nine marks of a healthy church this summer. So these guys are going to be teaching that. And uh, we have a lot planned. Uh, and we had a lot more planned for the summer. But Lord willing, things will open up more and we can do more things together. And these guys can experience the ministry in a fuller way. So it's just a summer thing they're doing. And then it will end at the end of the summer. We'll take an offering for them. And then we'll go back to the normal routine that we have. First Peter chapter number 1. The story goes, I read a story this past week. In the 1800s, there were a group of Irish ladies who met in Dublin for a Bible study. And so they were studying some of the Old Testament prophets. And one book they studied was Malachi chapter 3. And as they came across Malachi 3.3, 3, the passage says, He, speaking of God, will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. These ladies had no experience in purifying any kind of metal, and so they started talking about, what does that even mean? And so they gave an assignment to one lady, and they said, why don't you go to the silversmith, sit there, watch what he does, and report back to us, and maybe we can understand what this means. So she did this. She go to the, went to the silversmith and, and told the man, hey, I'd like to just watch you. Didn't tell her why. Just said, I want to observe what you do. And so he let her sit there as he sat there and refined silver. And she watched him as he sat and he stared at the silver and at the furnace there. And she said to him, sir, why, why are you sitting while you are refining this silver? And he says, well, I, I must watch the, the silver and the fire and make sure it's at the right temperature. And I got to make sure that we don't ruin the silver. And I want to make sure there's a pure product. And so she watched this process. And she came back from this time to the Bible study later that next week and sat down with these ladies, and she described the process. And she said, this, this silversmith, he cares for that gold, and so that's why he watches it, and he actually controls the temperature, so it's just the right temperature, so that it can purify the silver. And he does everything he does on purpose as he watches that, that, that silver there. And then she said, one of the most interesting things was at the very end, the silversmith said, I know the silver is done and complete when I can look at the silver and I can see my reflection in the silver. And she says to the ladies, she said to the ladies, I think Christ does that with us. He refines us. He's in control of the fire. He wants to purify us and he wants us to reflect the image of himself. Last week we studied that God is refining our faith. He's refining us so that we can have a pure faith. And that refinement of our faith causes us to rejoice. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, we see the, the great salvation that God has provided for us. And so we looked last week at how we are to rejoice because of this salvation. In fact, in verses 6 through 9, it begins and it ends with this description of people who had great joy. Look at verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice. And then in verse 8, halfway through the verse, he says, You rejoice with 
joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Where did that joy come from? Well, last week we learned that joy comes from faith. Joy really is the overflow of a heart of a person who trusts God. And when your heart trusts God, what comes out of your heart is joy. I read an interesting quote by Charles Spurgeon who said this. You've got to listen to it real careful here. Peace is joy resting, and joy is peace dancing. Let me say that again. Peace is joy resting, and joy is peace dancing. And I was, as you look at the scripture, you look at peace and joy. They're kind of like sisters. And peace, kinda like, peace is like the sister that's calm, and joy is kind of like the sister that has ADD. You know, she's a little too bubbly. And that's what you see in the scripture, that, that joy and, and peace go together, and they come from a heart that trusts God. One person said it like this. They said, peace and, and the peace and the joy of God come from a heart of faith that God is in control and that he is and he will do what is best for me. So God's peace and joy come from this heart of faith that, that God is good, he has my good in mind, and God is great. So joy is that, that peace of God, that, or joy and peace come from a heart of faith in God. One person wrote this. This is another person I was reading. He says, use this illustration. He said, joy is the peace of God on fire. So when you truly believe in God's greatness, in God's goodness, the flames of joy will roar from your soul. So just some interesting ways that people are looking at this, but the whole idea is this, is that, that, faith, that uh, joy and peace come from this heart of faith. In fact, look at this verse in your screen. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing. And so, so Paul says here, listen, God can give you joy and peace as you believe in him. I can remember after September 11th, 2001, that I had some friends, some friends and I went down to Madison, Wisconsin. We actually shared this verse with some of the people that were down there. Uh, this was, I think our pastor was preaching through the book of Romans at the time. And so at some point I got this verse and just thought, this is a great verse to share because when you're in tragedy, what are the two things you really want? Well, you want peace, but you also want joy. And according to Romans 15, 13, how can you have that? Well, it's through faith, through believing in him. And so this idea is central to understanding this text of 1 Peter, 6, uh, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. And so if you look down in your text there, you can see it to do an overview again of this text, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 talks about God's goodness and how he saved us, and how he regenerated us, and he promises to keep us and to provide a heavenly inheritance. And then in verse 5, you can see he says, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation. So we trust that God has this salvation for us. And then verse 6, the result of that is that in this you rejoice. And then in verse 7, he says, you remain joyful in spite of trials. How is that possible? Verse 7, because we're trusting that God has a purpose 
And he is testing the genuineness of our faith. And then in verse 8, he gives another obstacle to joy. And he says, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. So this joy, it really explodes as you sink into or you trust into in the, the Lord, trust and believe in him. So we can confidently say this, is that you can have joy if you believe God, if you're believing God. And on the reverse of that, we can say, if you lack joy, it's because of your choice not to believe God. If you lack joy, it's because of your choice to not believe God. And you might say, well, what about when things are difficult? You know, we like to come up with excuses for why we can disobey God in areas like this. And, but the Bible says we can still rejoice. In fact, that's kind of what he's talking about here. Sometimes we like to think about joy in, in the realm of thinking, well, if, if I can control everything, if I can control this situation, then I'll have joy. So I'm not happy right now. I'm not joyful right now because I can't control this. But once I have control, then I can have joy. Or, or once I can move beyond this, I can have joy. Once everything works out, I can have joy. But actually what we find in the scripture is that joy is sourced in the belief that God is in control and that he secures my life and he is doing what is best. And again, this doesn't mean that we can't cry. We don't have sorrow. We trust, though, that God is good and his promises are for us. And we rejoice. So let's just do this. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, 6 through 9. That's our text this morning, and then we'll pray. The Bible says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, Though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we desire this morning to cling to you by faith, to trust your word and trust that the result of faith is that you save us, that you keep us, and we can have the joy of the Lord. And the truth is the joy of the Lord is our strength. God, strengthen us today with the truth of your word, and may we respond in thanksgiving and joy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at the four ways that our faith brings joy. And we first looked at joy comes as we trust his promises. Joy remains as we trust his purpose. And this week, we're going to look at joy grows as we trust his person. And that person is the person of Jesus Christ. So joy grows as we trust his person. Peter describes these believers as people who are joyful. They had many obstacles, though, in their, their walk with the Lord for joy. In fact, he lists three of those here. You can see them as they start off with the word though. We have many obstacles in our life for joy, don't we? Sometimes we can look at people 
maybe on social media or maybe sometimes just in church and times when we're gathering, we can look at people and we think, oh, they got life together. Everything's okay with them. They don't have any problems. From, from the external view of people, we can think people are, are, have a wonderful life. And we think that because we think, well, if, if, they, if they have good things and if they don't seem to have a lot of problems on the outside, therefore they must be joyful, happy people. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? Many people have things going on in their heart and their life that nobody knows about, or maybe only a few people know about, or maybe you don't know about. I can remember times in South Carolina when we had particularly difficult days of ministry, or maybe something was going on in our life, and you know, sometimes people will come up to us and say things like, oh, you got such sweet little children, and what a perfect little life, and you know, they don't have a clue what's going on in our life, and so we you know, say God is good or whatever, but sometimes you you know, think to yourself, actually, I got a lot of things going on in my life right now. I don't have the perfect little life. I kind of think that's where a lot of people are. A lot of people are in that situation. So, but that comes from this idea that we can, well, sometimes we look at people and we think, well, if they have good fortune or if they have good things, therefore they have joy. And that's really sourced in a wrong view of where joy comes from. Joy does not come because you have no problems. You might think to yourself, well, once I'm beyond this problem, like once we're beyond the coronavirus, then we can have joy. You know, once I get back to my job or once our kids get back to school, once these kids get out of my house, <laughs> then I'm going to have joy, right? Or, you know, sometimes we can think once we're beyond something, we can have joy. Or sometimes we think, you know, once I get this, once I go on this vacation, you know, I can't go on vacation. Once I go on vacation, then I will have joy. But joy can be a part of our Christian life, and I should say it this way, joy is a part of our Christian life, whether life is smooth, whether life is rough, because joy is not found in our circumstances. Joy is not found in things. Joy is found in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And that's what we see here. These believers in 1 Peter, these believers face many obstacles to joy, and one of those is the fact that they were going through grievous trials. You can see that there in verse 6. You have been grieved by various trials. And we, again, looked at this last week of how they were persecuted and how they faced grievous trials in that way and being rejected by family and friends and their government. But the, the joy of the Lord remained because they, they, they trusted God. They believed God had a purpose in what he was doing. God is refining their faith and their faith uh, grew in the Lord, and their joy, therefore, grew as well. So there are two more obstacles to faith, or I'm sorry, two more obstacles to joy. And you can see that first one in verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. As Christians, we trust in Jesus even though we've never seen him. Peter had seen him, right? Peter lived with him. Peter lived with him for three, uh, three and a half, three years there. And so he, he saw him die. He saw him be resurrected. He saw him walk on this earth. But these believers here were much like us. They had never seen Jesus. At least they never knew Jesus. And so that's hard, isn't it? I mean, think about this, the reality that we believe in a person. We have trusted in a person We've trusted our entire lives with this person, and we have never met him. He's Jesus. I imagine these believers here in, in, in 1 Peter, I can imagine them coming, becoming believers and, and being saved and telling their friends. And you know, people are saying, like, who is this person you're trusting? Well, his name is Jesus. He, he lived, he died, and he's actually still alive. And they're like, well, where is he at? 
where, where is this Jesus at? Well, he's in heaven. Okay. Well, when are you going to see him again? Well, he's going to come back for us. And I can imagine a couple months going by, maybe a couple years, and there's some problems in their life, and they come back and they say, you know, you've got a lot of problems in your life. It looks like this Jesus isn't taking care of you. And you said he's coming back, but I don't see this Jesus here now. So, so you can see the difficulty that they would have faced, and really we even faced, the fact that we are trusting in a person that we don't even, we don't see. We can't see him. I think about it like this. If you've ever been on an airplane, you might have, you might have walked into the airplane. Maybe you walked in and you thought, wow, this is amazing that this thing can get off the ground and it's going to take me to my destination. And you, know, you strapped yourself in the airplane there and you got your magazine out and you started you know, trying not to think about the, you know, the takeoff. And you take off, you get in the air and you're going through the air and all of a sudden there's turbulence. Maybe, maybe the, fl- the plane is uh, flying a little erratically up there. And, and it could be that as you're kind of bouncing up and down and maybe thinking, this is, this is not really going well, you might think to yourself, wait a second, who's flying this plane? You ever had that happen? And it's like you don't even think about the pilot until you maybe have some problems. And you start thinking, I wonder, I wonder if this guy is like a good pilot. <laughs> like, is this guy new? You know, is this, is this like a rookie up there or what? And, and so sometimes when there's problems on a plane, you start thinking about that. Like we are trusting the plane, right? But ultimately we're trusting that there's a person up there that has, has good skills and good character and he's going to get us to the destination because he's been trained and he has a good heart. Like he's not going to, you know, run that thing into the ground. And so the, the point is, is that when, when you have a problem, like on a plane or something like that, you start thinking to yourself, who is this pilot? And you don't know this pilot, right? I mean, you, you might have seen him when you came in. Maybe you peeked in there. Maybe like one of my kids where you peek their head and you're like, hey, you know, and, but, but you don't know the pilot. And there's a sense where you're trusting someone you don't know, or I should say someone you don't see, right? That's up there. And in a, in a similar way, it's what it is with the Lord. Like, we trust Jesus even though we don't see Jesus. And, you know, I think sometimes when the turbulence of life comes, those are kind of the times that we wake up and we go, wait a second, is, who is Jesus? <laughs> is he, does he love me? Does he care for me? Unfortunately, sometimes we actually uh, question his love for us and question that he is caring for us. But my point is here is that here, Peter is laying out that these people, that they love Jesus, they believe in Jesus, even though they had never met him before. And our faith in Christ is in a person that we have not seen, but yet we trust our lives to him. And this isn't, you know, the analogy of a plane is a little difficult because it's not like a, a cold, you know, faith in a pilot. It's like, I trust he's going to get me to heaven, you know. It's, it's, it's actually a love that we have for him. And that's why he says, he says, you love him. I mean, what a great description of the Christian life. It's actually a description of a relationship we have with him. You see, God has shown his love to us and we respond in love to him. In fact, if you look at verse two, all the way down to verse five, that's really a great description of the plan of God to love you. Look in verse 2, and I'm not going to go through all this again, but just remember what we learned in verse 2. The Bible says God elected us according to his foreknowledge. Remember, we said the word foreknowledge speaks to the idea that God chose before creation to set his love upon you. This is a word that reminds us that God loves us. It's not just a cold decision to, oh, that's that person right there. It's like, I'm going to set my love upon you. And then at the end of verse 2, it says, for obedience to Jesus and the sprinkling of the blood. Remember, we said that this is a picture of the old covenant 
that God has that God had an exodus with Israel and also a picture of the new covenant God has with us. And again, this is speaking of a relationship, a covenant God has made with us. We have made with him. And then in verse three, we said he uh, saves us because of his merciful love. And the word mercy speaks of his covenant love again. And so you see in this text, all this, this idea that God has shown his great love for us. And so in verse eight, what you see is that we are therefore responding in love to him. Though we have not seen him, we believe that God has loved us. We believe that Jesus has died for us. And we love him back. Even though we have not, have not seen him, we love him. So notice our response is agape love. God has shown this love towards us, and our love back is agape love as well. In fact, this word love is a present tense, so it's, an, it's ongoing. This is a description of what your life should look like every day. Our life as a Christian is a relationship with Jesus that's an ongoing relationship of sacrificial love because he has loved us. In fact, isn't this what 1 John four nineteen says? We love him. Because he first loved us. So this describes the the intimacy of the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. In fact, when Jesus was on earth, he was asked, you know, what's the summation of the law? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said this. He said, Matthew 22, 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love is the essence of what it looks like to live in relationship with Jesus Christ. We love him with everything we are, our soul and our mind and our our hearts. And we love our neighbor as ourself. Why? Because we love God. So even though we have not seen him, we love him. And I think when we see things like this, it's good for us to ask ourselves the question, Is this a good description of my relationship with Jesus Christ? Is this a good description of your relationship with the Lord? That you love him? Think about the last 10 weeks. Has it been 10 weeks? Maybe longer? I don't know. Think about the last 10 weeks. I mean, has this described your last 10 weeks? You've had a lot of time, at least most people, have had a lot of time by themselves. A lot of time to do nothing. What did you do with that nothing? And probably what you did with that nothing reveals what you truly love. Do you love the Lord or do you love yourself? Do you love other things that are around you, love this world? And so it's easy, it's easy to love the things we see, right? It's easy to love ourselves, but it's hard to love that which we have not even seen yet. I think that's the struggle you see there in verse 8. It's like though you have never met him, no, you've never seen him. Like, you still love him. When life is hard and it's difficult, we run to what we love, right? And, and generally, we run to that what we can see and that what we can touch and that what we can experience by visually or, or sensing it in some way. But Christ wants us to run to him. There's a, a story I, I read this past week of a lady, and she lives in Indonesia, And this is a picture of her right here. She was a Christian lady and is a Christian lady in Indonesia. She was married with two children. 
One day there was a religious attack upon her village, and there was some kerosene that was put on different houses to be burnt, burn the houses down, and some of the kerosene came onto her, and she was actually burnt in this attack upon the Christians of her village. This is what she looks like. This is what the article says about her. He says her skin is splotchy and ranges in color from light brown to red to white. Much of it is leathery. Her nose is disfigured. She has purplish colored patch of skin in between her bottom lip, lip and the bottom of her chin. Her left eye is white and red. Her pupil is, is clearly no longer able to see. Her husband left her. Now she has to raise two girls on her own. And they took this picture and they took it of her um, and she happened to be smiling. And as the person that wrote this article describes her, he said, this is a lady, though, that radiates joy. This is a lady who is a Christian that doesn't walk around uh, moping around her village. This is a lady who smiles all the time. And she says in a video you can even watch if you wanted to online that she says, God has been so good to me. Now, where does a view like that come from? Where does a smile like this come from? It doesn't come from wearing name brand clothes, right? It doesn't come from the perfect haircut or great makeup or having flawless skin or the, the best tan in Southern California. Like, this comes from God. It comes from God. Her joy comes from the Lord. And it's this. It's a belief that God is in control of my life, that God is good for me, and he has even better for me to come. So how can a lady like that have joy? She loves God, and she believes in him. And joy is found in a person. And so there was a woman who found her joy in Jesus Christ. So verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And then goes on and gives another obstacle to joy. Very similar, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And the result of both of those is that you rejoice. Peter sets up really two parallel descriptions of the Christian's relationship with Jesus. We love him, and then we believe in him. And also, he presents two obstacles to joy. And he says, though you have not seen him, so it's kind of in the past, like you have never seen him in the past, and though you do not now see him, that's speaking more of in the present, currently you are not seeing him. And, and both these parallel obstacles of joy or basically have the same idea, right? And that's that you can't visually experience Jesus. So the response, though, of not being able to see Jesus, but believing him and, and loving him is that we have joy. So you can see this, this, the love and, and belief is, is somewhat set as a parallel, somewhat set as almost like synonyms to each other. But I think what he's pointing out here is he's saying, this is your relationship you have with, with the Lord Jesus. And, and these are kind of the two pillars of that relationship. And think about this way, any relationship has those two pillars, right? I mean, if you're in a relationship, uh, you're married, husband and wife, and you have a good relationship, like you love that person, but also you have to trust that person, right? And you, you should trust that person, but it's not just cold like I trust you. It's actually I also love you. So both these are part of that relationship with Jesus, and so even though we don't see Jesus, we still love and we keep believing in him. And again, I imagine there were people that would mock these first century Christians here, family, friends, society, that would say, well, where is he at then? 
Like you say he's coming, you know, he's coming back. But you know, actually in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, the Bible says that there were people that were scoffers. And they said, these scoffers are going to come. And I imagine that was something that was a regular part of their life. It was like, you say Jesus is coming, coming soon, huh? And scoffers will say, where's the promise of his coming? You keep saying Jesus is coming back, but he's not back yet. I think that's kind of what's behind that second clause there in verse 8. Though you do not now see him, you keep believing. It's like, you know, though he hasn't come back yet, and you, and you believe that, right? But though you, you still have not seen him, it's like he still hasn't appeared yet. You're like, I am still believing in him. I still believe in him. I think this is the struggle that we, that we face, right? We would love to see Jesus. I mean, not just would. We, we can't wait to see him. But even now, you, you, do you have those times where you're like, Jesus, I wish I could just see you. I wish you'd just, just talk back to me. Like, tell me like, what to do in this situation. Or just hug me right now. Like, I need, I need you right now. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. And faith doesn't mean that we have this kind of blind stupidity or it's without facts or without knowledge. No, our faith is based upon the word of God, right? And so we have faith in God's word, not sight. In other words, we, we can't see Jesus. He's not coming and talking to us here. Our faith in Jesus comes from the word of God, and this is where he speaks to us from. Think about the story Jesus told once of, of the rich man and Lazarus. If you remember this story, the rich man lived his whole life in pleasure and for the things of this world. Eventually he died. He found himself in hell. And he realized that the beggar that was outside was in heaven and Abraham's bosom there. And so there was Abraham and, and Lazarus in heaven. And somehow God allowed him to be able to see that. So he cried out to Abraham. He says, Abraham, send, send Lazarus back to my five brothers, because I have five brothers. They need to hear the gospel. Send him back if he was resurrected surely those brothers would believe. And that sounds logical, doesn't it? I mean, honestly, if someone resurrected from the dead, like someone that you know of that has died, and they said, hey, I just came back from the dead. I mean, you got to believe. What's interesting is Abraham actually says they wouldn't believe. Like they have, they have the Old Testament scriptures. If they don't listen to the Old Testament scriptures, they're not going to listen to, they're not going to listen to Lazarus, though he was raised from the dead. And he says, no, 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 no. He, they would repent. And then he says this in verse 31 of, of Luke chapter 16. Abraham said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Just an interesting uh, point, and that is those in heaven still have a bad theology. right? They st they're still wrong in their theology and what they how they think about life. But sometimes we think to ourselves, like, and some people even uh, present this, that, if I were to be able to have some kind of proof from Jesus, then I would believe in Jesus. Even sometimes as Christians, we can think that. It's like, Jesus, if you would just speak to me, I would know what to do. I'd know how I should uh, navigate this situation. I, I would feel more comforted, comforted. I was thinking just this past week, and actually the past couple weeks, I've really been wrestling a lot with, um, I've really been wrestling a lot with, is that, is that, can they see me right now? Okay, good. I just know if that. Sorry, I have different screens here to see different things. I've been, I've been wrestling a lot with what do we do as a church? You know, when can we gather? How can we gather? 
And it's difficult. And there's been a lot of times where I've just been praying and, th- and I've even told the Lord, Lord, I just don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to do. I know what your word says. We should don't forsake the gathering together, honor the government. And so you have this like wrestling that's going. And I've, and I've thought to myself before, you know, if you would just like speak to me, Lord, like if you just say like, hey, Ben, this is what you're supposed to do. That'd be so much easier. <laughs> you ever thought that? Like, that'd be a lot easier if that took place, if that happened. That's not how it works now. In fact, there, there are people that preach and say, well, you know, Jesus appeared to me and this is what he said. If that happens, if someone says that to you, they're either lying, right? Or they had someone maybe appear to them that wasn't Jesus, but was from the other side. You know, maybe a demon appeared to them. And so if someone tells you that, they're either selling you something, they want your money, or they're lying to you for another reason. But the point is, is that we aren't able to see Jesus. Okay, so if anyone tells you that they've seen him, or they, there's a religion they believe, and that, that prophet and their religion saw Jesus, and therefore that's why we believe this. So that's, that's a bunch of fooey then. You can just throw it out the window. How, how does Jesus speak to us? Well, he speaks to us through his word. But not seeing him is kind of the struggle here. It's difficulty. We wish we could see him. Now, he is with us, right? He's with us in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is with us. We have his presence with us, but we can't physically see him. And when difficulties come into our life, we we cry out and we say, God, do you care for me? Like, I'm praying. I don't hear anything, Lord. Like, I'm I'm reading your word. I want to experience you, and and I'm kind of lost right now. I think actually every man and woman of God experiences this. At least a couple times in their life, maybe on an ongoing basis, where you just wrestle with God and it's just like, are you there, Lord? <laughs> like, is, is this all real? Like, I, okay, I believe your word. I see what your word says. I think about Moses, how he felt like he was forgotten, right? On the backside of the desert of Midian. Elijah thought he was the lone believer in all of the world. Job suffered and wondered where was God at. Jeremiah wept in a dungeon. David cried out in caves. And if you read the Psalms, you can read David's just honest assessment of where he thinks he is, but also his faith and where he believes God is. In fact, let me just put this on the screen. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? So this is David just crying out to the Lord in a song. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? I mean, you ever ask questions like that to the Lord? It's like, how long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Okay, I, don't, I still don't hear anything. Okay, so I'm just going to keep praying. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death, and my enemy will say I I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. And so it's like, he's just saying, like, this is how I feel, Lord. Like, where are you at right now? But notice what David does in verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praises, for he has been good to me. And notice where David turns his focus to. It's to the Lord. He says, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. So all of David's troubles screamed out, the Lord has forgotten you, David. All of David's thoughts 
wrestled, he wrestled with his thoughts. Why do I have so much sorrow? Where is the Lord at? But then David came back to this. God loves me. God is good to me. God has saved me. And I, therefore, will rejoice in that salvation. In those times of difficulty for David and for Moses and Elijah and Job and Jeremiah, and honestly, we could go through each story, which would be really fun, but would be really long. But those times of difficulty were times for them to be strengthened in their faith and their love for God. And the result of those times were times of joy, were the result of joy and rejoicing. Joy grows as we trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Joy comes from the relationship that we have. We love him and we trust him and therefore we have joy. And you can see that then in 1 Peter, the very end of the verse where he says, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The Greek word translated joy inexpressible occurs only here in the New Testament, and it describes a joy that is so profound, it is beyond the power of words to describe. In other words, this is supernatural joy. In other words, there's, there's, a, there's a joy that God gives believers in the most difficult time, and it's something that you can't even describe in words. It's something that, that Peter couldn't have even written down here because it can't even be described. It's inexpressible. It's full of glory. In fact, there's another, there's another fruit of the Spirit. There's another uh, work that God does in our life that's kind of the same idea. That's, that's the idea that we can't really understand it or fully comprehend it or really even explain it. You know what that one is? It's in Philippians chapter 4, and it speaks of the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So here we have the joy of God that is beyond the power of words to be able to express. The point is, is that when you believe in Jesus and when you keep believing in Jesus, God does this supernatural work in your heart. It's a supernatural work of peace and of joy. Of peace and of joy. I think that's why it's so difficult when you are, when I've done counseling or maybe you're counseling someone and you're trying to describe to them about like how, how it works in the Christian life. And there's many things that are logical. I mean, actually, the whole scripture is logical, but there's some things you can logically explain to people and say, well, you know, there's consequences in life. So if you do something wrong, bad happens. And, and that's how God designed the world. And actually, God wants you to realize that, that bad things will happen if you, or consequences will happen if you do bad things because there's an ultimate consequence, and that is separation from him. And so there's a logic to the word of God but there's a part of, of, of God's work that is, you can't really describe. And really, it's the result of it. Like, how do you describe the joy that God gives you? How do you describe the peace that God gives you? That's what people want. And they're kind of like, how do I get that? Well, friend, you have to go back and believe the Lord. And some people say, well, I've tried to believe the Lord. and It didn't work for me. Well, it's not something where it's not like one plus one equals two. It's like God is the one doing it in and through your life. Right? It's supernatural. In other words, God must do the work in you. And what you do is you say, I believe you, God. I love you. And the result is joy. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and it's full of glory. We're not going to really go into the last one very much. but just want to point it out to you. 
that joy is fully realized as we receive his product. Look at verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So verse 9 speaks to the result of our faith. You live a life of faith and result at the end is salvation. The result of a life of faith in the Lord is the salvation of your souls. This does not mean if you live a good life, then you get to be saved. It's not what it's talking about. It's actually the exact opposite. (laughs) Like you live your life and you recognize you're not a good person. Jesus is the Savior and you keep trusting him. And you keep trusting him your whole life. The result is the end of your faith. That is the salvation of your soul. And notice the focus he keeps bringing us back to here. It's receiving the end of our faith, the salvation of our soul. It's like looking to the future, looking to the future. Jesus is coming back. There's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's, he's saying, guys, there's, God has good in store for you. You might have a very difficult situation you're going through. Your life might be very difficult. Look to the future. Look to what God is doing. Trust the Lord. And as we trust him, God gives us joy. And again, we remember that joy is found in a person. So let me just wrap up by giving you a couple ways you can apply this today. How can you find joy in the person of Jesus Christ? Think about the difficulty that you're going through right now, and maybe you have been thinking about that, but how can you have joy in the midst of that difficulty? Trust in the person of Jesus. First of all, let me encourage you to spend time with Jesus. Like That's what a real relationship does, right? If we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it means we spend time with him. So listen to him in the word of God. I mean, if you're not studying and listening to the word of God, no wonder you don't have joy. How can you believe in God and believe him if you don't even read what he has to say to you? So spend time with Jesus. Let me give you another encouraging way to trust the person of Jesus Christ, and that is sing to Jesus. Sing to him. We sang here this morning. That was great. I loved our time of singing. But really, that should be something that is on a regular, as a regular part of our life, be singing to the Lord Jesus and praise and praising him for his great salvation. Next, pray through Jesus. Pray through Jesus. Pray to the Father through Jesus Christ. We say, in the name of Jesus. So the idea is that we say, God, I just want to cast my cares upon you, and I'm coming to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And then last, I would say, serve Jesus. Serve Jesus. Serve in the name of Jesus, which is kind of the idea that I live my life no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm going to work, taking care of kids, washing the dishes, you know, what, doing yard work, whatever I do, I do it in the name of Jesus, and I serve Jesus Christ. Maybe I, even, I do things that I'm not planning to do because I want to serve the Lord Jesus. So we trust the person of Jesus as we spend time with him, we sing to him, we pray to him, and then we serve him. What's the result of that faith in the Lord Jesus. It's joy. It's joy. Do you want joy in your life? Do you want peace in your life? It only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit as we trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that though we live in a world that's upside down, though we live in a world that seeks to rob us of joy and of peace, through sin and difficulty and sorrow and oppression, that you have not left us alone. You provide within us joy and peace through the Holy Spirit. In fact, one of the 
the, the fruits, I should say, of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is joy and peace. And so we can truly only experience that and have that through you. And I, I desire that, and I desire our people to have that. So God, help us to believe you, to trust you. Help us to trust you. God, I pray that our church will be described as a church that has joy because we're a church that trusts in you. Help us not to look to our own selves, not lean upon our own understanding, to not seek to fulfill our own, our own desires, but help us to look to you, to trust in you with all our heart, to love you with all our person. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me remind you as we conclude here today that we have a 7 o'clock um, Zoom call tonight. Again, we're not going to announce tonight when we're going to be gathering. Um, the elders are going to meet tomorrow. There's some new developments that have even taken place in the past, uh, even today, um, and actually yesterday too. So, but tonight, I do want to update you on all those developments, help you know how we're thinking about this, I'll give you a little insight into what we're thinking. Um, and uh, so please join us tonight. Again, you can do that through the link that we send to you. If you don't have a computer or you don't know how to go on your computer, you can actually use your phone. So you just call the phone number on there, use the, the code to dial in, and then you can get on it. If you don't know how to do that, can you please call me? Because I would love for you to be a part of that um, here tonight. And we love you. We're praying for you. And Lord willing, uh, by the power of um, the work of God, we will be able to gather soon.